following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. I wonder if you consider with me this evening as we consider the love of our Savior, and I want you to see the connection, the necessity between Christ's glory and our love. You might think about a song, a song whose words bring you back to a time and a place. For me, that song, admittedly, is, it's a secular song, but that song is leaving on a jet plane. And uh, I was in Indonesia with my wife, who was not my wife, and she did not know that we were, that I had intentions yet, but I knew that I was, that I wanted to marry her. And the song was playing as I said goodbye to her for one of the last times before we started dating. And you may have a song like that, that when the minute it plays, you are reminded. For, for many of us, there are hymns of the faith that bring us back to a time in our childhood where we were brought up by our faithful parents and we were in church and reminded of those sweet moments of fellowship with other believers, but even more importantly, with our Lord. And I want you to see this evening that there is an inextricable link, like those songs bring back a well of emotions in our hearts, all kinds of memories and even smells, and you can, you can be in that moment. So too, when we see Christ's glory, as we see there in verses 31 to 33, when we see Christ glorified both in the on the cross and in heaven, that there has to be a necessary link between seeing Christ glorified and our love for one another. And so that is, for our sakes tonight, the point of the text, verses 31 to 35, teaches us this, that Christ's glory necessitates that you love one another. Christ's glory necessitates that you love one another one another. And we'll look at those two sections, verses 31 to 33, Christ's glory, verse 34 to 35, the Christian's love. So look at me there, look with me there at verse 31. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. Well, we've read the context, so hopefully by now you know who has gone out. It's Judas. Judas has left the presence of the faithful 11 disciples and of Jesus. Judas has been given the bread, and Satan has entered him, and he leaves. And this series of events leading up to Christ's crucifixion has been set in motion. And so we have an audience here that are the 11 faithful disciples. These are believers. This is the church. These are the faithful who have been left behind. And Jesus is now saying, speaking to them in particular, and saying, now, now has the, is the Son of Man glorified. Now is God glorified in the Son. Well, there's, we, we can see that that is a direct link to the crucifixion itself. There's some debate as to whether this is speaking about the ascension or the crucifixion, but I think there's, it is rightly said by many commentators that you could render this verse, now is the Son of Man crucified. 
The glorification that Jesus speaks of in 31 is speaking about the glory to be had on the cross. And that's challenging for us because we don't think of the cross often as glory. We think of the cross as shame, and rightfully so. The Bible speaks of the cross as being the dreadful death of a cross, an accursed death on a cross, and it is. But we see in this moment that Christ points to a greater glory that is achieved in this upside-down kingdom, if you will, where to be, to be increasing is to be decreasing. As Jesus has demonstrated in chapter 13, to be the greatest is to be the servant of all, to be the, the leader and the protector of his bride, of his church, of his disciples, is to come alongside and wash their feet, to be the one who is with them. And so glory is received first on the cross, verse 31. You notice, of course, that there is an immediacy to this glory. Now the Son of Man is glorified. Now is God glorified in Him. Well, how is the cross glorious? You know, Origen, the uh, second century theologian from Alexandria, says, well, this is a humble glory, and I think he's right. The glory of the cross, the glory of Christ in his crucifixion is a humble glory. The glory of Christ, we could say really in all of chapter 13, is a humble glory. The glory of Christ coming to earth in flesh, being humiliated to the point of death, even death on a cross, born in the likeness of sinful flesh, but without sin, is a humble glory. One commentator says this, the glory of Christ as he stoops to save us is the glory of the Father whose will Christ is doing. The cross reveals the heart of God as well as the heart of Christ for sinners. Christ had glory in his miracles. Christ had glory even as he is born uh, in the likeness of sinful flesh, yet without sin. But Christ has the most glory as we come to this point of his demonstrating his love for us, as we read there in Romans chapter 5. He demonstrates love for us in that while we were still sinners, he dies for us. The Father and the Son do this work together. We recognize the Son is the one who dies on the cross, but notice what does 31 say? Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified. Where? In the Son. So that as the Son dies, the Father is glorified even in that death. Christ receives glory in that culmination of his life, and the culmination of salvation at the cross. But the culmination of that glory is approved by the Father. You might think back to Matthew chapter 3. You might think back to Matthew chapter 17, where at both the baptism of Christ and the transfiguration of Christ, what does the Father say? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And here we have verse 31 confirming the Father's pleasure in the Son, the Father's glory in the Son. Now is God glorified in Him, even in the crucifixion itself. And so we have that culmination of glory as glory is received by the Son, as glory is received by the Father. The Father planned our redemption. The Son accomplished our redemption. The Spirit applies our redemption. Well, how is there glory in sacrifice? We might say, okay, I see from the text, I see that there's glory now in the present, in the reality, but 
But this glory of sacrifice, it sounds like something that is totally unknown, certainly in our world. But you know what's fascinating to me is there's so many stories. There's so many, even movies out of Hollywood that, that speak of this kind of glory in sacrifice. And there was a recent movie uh, in 2018 where a father, it's throughout the movie they use sign language, and there's a struggle in the relationship between the father and the daughter. And yet it comes to the point at the end of the movie, really the culmination of the story, is that the father looks at his daughter and she's being, I won't, I'll spare you some, some of the details, but basically the, the daughter is almost being attacked. And the father looks at his daughter, he says, and he signs, I love you, I've always loved you. And he sacrifices himself for the sake of his daughter. Hollywood recognizes, the world recognizes that there's glory and sacrifice, but it thinks that that's the end of it. That a father dying for his daughter is the extent of glory. But Christ shows us that there is far more glory to be had on the cross. As Christ himself goes, the perfect son of God goes for the sake of sinners like you and like me. Christ's glory is infinitely greater infinitely more marvelous and more beautiful than anything, any kind of glory and self-sacrifice that you and I have ever known. Have you ever thought about that shameful cross as bringing glory to the Father? Or does the cross simply for you shame? It should bring you joy to see and to know that there is the love, the deep, deep love of Jesus manifested as he goes to that kind of a death for you so that you might be brought into union with the Father as you come in union to the Son. The humiliation, the sacrifice that your salvation required brought the Son, brought the Father glory. So what do we do? We praise, we honor, we worship, we adore, we fight against sin, fight against temptation, we pursue righteousness, we pursue Christ's likeness, we ask God, make me like Christ, make me more into the perfect image of your son who died for me and gave himself for me. We suffer for the sake of the gospel, we go out into our neighborhoods and we evangelize and we say, do you know this kind of glory? Do you believe in one who went to the cross for his people, who died for sinners like you and like me? But there is also a glory of heaven. We see in verse 32, if God is glorified in him, and he is, then God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. There's a lot here we could unpack, but I just want to look at a few things. The first, if God is glorified in him, there's an, there's an assertion that the glory of the Father demands then that God will also glorify him in himself. That God asserts that he is pleased in the Son, and therefore, what does the, how does the Father show his pleasure in the Son? He brings him to glory. He brings him into heaven, into full communion with himself. What, John 17, chapters later, what would Jesus say in the high priestly prayer, prayer? Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Christ, look forward to the glory of heaven, even recognizing the glory of the cross that awaited him and the suffering that was yet to come. Since the Father is glorified in the Son, then the Father will certainly vindicate 
give victory to the Son, and glorify him in heaven. Again, you'll notice the change in tense between 31 and 32. 31, now the Son of Man is glorified. 32, God will also glorify him. So we see there the contrast between the present reality of the cross in 31 and 32, the future reality of heaven as Christ is glorified and brought into full glory in heaven. The resurrection, the ascension of Christ is the seal of the Father's approval of the Son's work. And the immediacy, notice there in 32, the immediacy of the Son's work, the immediacy of the Son's glory. What does it say? He will glorify Him immediately. He will do it at once, some translations say. The immediacy of Christ's death, the immediacy of Christ's resurrection, of His glorification, and of our salvation show the true power of Christ's death. Here is a proof of Christ's own divinity in the immediacy of the effectiveness of Christ's salvation for you and for me, in the immediacy of Christ's being drawn into heaven, in the immediacy and the surety of the Father being pleased in the Son's sacrifice when it's even yet to be accomplished. It was as good as done. And so, brothers and sisters, we look at this passage and we see here an assurance of salvation that should, should make our hearts sing and rejoice and say, God, as sure as the Son's glorification, so sure is my salvation in Him. My union with Christ is accomplished because Christ's glory is accomplished by the Father. He is brought into close fellowship once more as He is brought into heaven. Your salvation is sure. You, have a, you can have a confidence in what Christ has done for you because his glorification is immediate. But then verse 33, not only is it sure, not only is it immediate, not only is there a glory in heaven, but there's a glory that brings comfort. There's a glory that brings hope. He says in 33, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, Christ tenderly consoles those whom he loves. What does he say, little children? John, of course, will use those same words in his epistles later, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Christ is consoling those he, he loves, uh, that he is going to be with them a little while longer, though they will not go to heaven immediately as he will. Yet their salvation is as good as done. Here is the fatherly care of Almighty God. Christ knows that this teaching is difficult. He knows that even as the disciples look, and, and even Peter is he's trying to figure out and put the pieces together, and how does this fit, and, 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 and you wash me? And, and, but, I, but I should be, Jesus says, you will seek me, and as I've said to the Jews where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, and so there is a glory that brings comfort because Jesus goes before us. Because Jesus is the first fruits of, of the salvation that is wrought in him. He is the promise, the guarantee of our inheritance. He goes into the holiest of holy places as our high priest and we follow him. And there is confidence, not in ourselves, but in Christ. 
And what's really interesting about this statement is there's an emphatic use here where I am going. It says, we could even render it where I myself am going, you yourselves cannot come. What does it emphasize? Well, it emphasizes Christ's heavenly glory, where I myself am going. It emphasizes our total need. You yourselves cannot come. But it also emphasizes Christ's total ability. <laughs> and, and above and beyond anything we could ask or think, Christ's total ability to meet our every need. Where, you, where I myself am going, you yourselves cannot come. So now I say to you, you know, you might think of even the story, many of you young kids might know the story of George and the dragon. And if you know the ending of the story when George defeats the dragon, you know what the king does for George? He gives him riches. He gives him a princess, his own daughter. He praises him and lavishes all these gifts upon him. He gives him a huge territory in the kingdom. And he says, when you come back, you get to be the next king. And the king says to, Sir, to, to George, he says, Never did living man, thinking about all the killing of the dragon, never did living man sail through such a sea of deadly dangers. You have earned your rest, George. How much more, how much infinitely more can we say that of Christ? That he has sailed through deadly dangers that no living man has ever known. And he has earned his rest. And he has earned his place. Christ the King is now on his throne in bodily glory. Have you reflected, dear children, dear brothers, dear sisters, have you reflected on that ascended glory to heaven, that he is there seated, that he is there interceding for you, that he makes your prayers possible, our worship this evening? We come into that very glory this evening. And like Isaiah, we would say, I'm undone. But does it give you pause to know that the glory that you come to worship is that same glory that the Father, that the Father has bestowed upon the Son as he, as he confirms the work that he does by bringing him to heaven again? Christ's glory culminated in that ascension, and we will see that glory one day. We will get to go there and be with Christ, and see him in all of his glory. And oh, what a day that will be. That's glory. The glory of the cross, the glory of heaven. But his glory on the cross doesn't just stop there. His glory in heaven is not just something to cause our jaws to fall to the floor. It does that, and it should. But we don't stay there. Because Christ's glory necessitates that we love. It brings us to the point of saying, not just how do, I, not how do I earn my salvation, how do I prove my worth. There is no way we can accomplish that. Christ has done it all. He said it is finished, and it is. But we respond because we have been loved with so great a love, so deep a love, so wide a love. And what does he say in 34? Therefore, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. This glory, the glory of Christ, stands plastered before us. And we say, what can I do but follow that Christ? What can I do but see his glory as the motivation, the foundation, the beginning and the end of my love for others? But specifically, who is he talking to here? 
He's talking to believers, for believers. This is the love of the church. This is the kind of love the world should envy. This is the kind of love that defines and, dis- and, and solidifies the nature of the church. It, it, it calls the church out of the world and says, this is the love that defines you. This is the love that only those who know Christ can show. And so it is a new commandment, he says. Well, there's a whole lot of work that's been done on why is it new, how is it new. I simply want to say this. The commandment is not newly given. Leviticus 19, verse 18, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Leviticus 19, I am Yahweh. Love has always and will always be grounded in God's character, in who he is, in what he does, in God himself. And so it is with Christ. But it's new. It's a new commandment here because Christ embodies a new, a fuller demonstration of this command. It's as if, I was teaching Sunday school this morning and I thought of this and it struck me. We have my young daughter, Anne, she's about two. And we were praying together and it just, her father's heart just got me. And I started you know, crying, I won't say sobbing. But I asked her, who died for you, Anne? And she said, Jesus. Jesus died for me. And that's true. But she doesn't yet know the extent of that death, the extent of her sin. I don't yet know the extent of my sin. And we won't know until we get to heaven. And even then, it's an infinite searching out of the depths and the riches and the fullness of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his love, his ways beyond even finding out. But this is, in Christ himself, a new, fuller embodiment of the command. And so, even like a little child can come and say, I believe in Christ, so we can say, I want to love my neighbor. But that becomes new and different, even as we understand it. But even more so, as Christ, the perfect Son of God, embodies that commandment and says, this is love, that you have been loved first. This is love that I've washed your feet and I have washed Judas's feet along with them. This is love that I have died for sinners and specifically for my own people. That I have died for those who needed and could not have accomplished any kind of salvation on their own. This is love that I have loved you first. You know, when a marriage counselor points you, when a marriage counselor works with you, he doesn't make you take new vows What does the marriage counselor do? He points you back to your original vows. He says, that is what you promised to do in sickness and health, for richer, for poorer. Well, it wasn't this kind of a sickness. It wasn't this kind of poverty. It wasn't this kind. This is how my life was supposed to be. What does that marriage counselor do? He says, no, that's exactly what you were vowing that day. You didn't know. But the nature of that love, the nature of those vows becomes clearer as we, as we live out our vows. They become fuller. And again, how much more fulfilled, how much more grand, how much more new, how much more perfect is the love that Christ shows? Infinitely so. Infinitely so. But what's the command? We're to love one another. 
We've already said we are to love one another is a command to Christians, for Christians. And the, the, the heartbeat of this command is in verse 34. As I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The example of Christ is the church's example to follow. But as we said, it's not just an example. It is the motor. It is the means by which we love. As Christ's love, so we are to love. And that love is only possible by the salvation of Christ, by the work of the Spirit in us, as we aim after the very love that he demonstrates, because others in the world do not know that love. And we cannot know that love apart from Christ. Calvin says this, Because the image of God shines more brightly in those who have been regenerated in Christians, it is proper that the bonds of love among the disciples of Christ be far more closer than those of the world. This doesn't, the world doesn't know him, therefore it cannot know his love. How much did Christ endure for your sakes? How much did he demonstrate his love for you? And do you show that kind of a deeper love, a deeper affinity for the church? Or is there, is there a, a deeper love for you, an affection for those outside the church more than those inside the church? Does your life demonstrate that you're closer connected to those who are living in sin than those living and fighting against sin? Do you love your believing families well, children? Do you love the brothers and sisters that God's given to you who name the name of Christ? Do you love them as those whom Christ has loved, as those whom are, he has called to love one another, if they've made professions of faith in particular? But even as covenant and believing households, have we loved even as we have been loved? Because we have a love that the world does not know. So Christ's love is both the measure and it's the ground. His love is three things. You'll notice in John chapter 13, his love is enduring. He loves them to the end, 13 verse 1. Second, his love is humble. He pours water into the basin. He washes the disciples' feet. And third, his love is a reassuring, a gentle love. Is your love humble? Is your love enduring? Is your love reassuring? Is it gentle? Is it kind? John, John 14, verse 1, look what it says. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And love, finally, in verse 35, is displayed. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is, I, was, I really struggled with this as I prepared this message because I confess to you that, that often we feel a reticence to proclaim the gospel to those that we come in contact with. And what does Jesus say? By this, all will know that you are my disciples. Our love should be so popular, should, should be so evident, should be so on our sleeves. We should wear our love as we wear a jacket on the outside that no one could mistake our love for anything but the love of Christ. That it should be, it should be a love that defines everything we do and say and think and feel. It defines who we are. And there, there's no hiding it under a bushel. There couldn't be any bushel to hide it under because it's who we are in everything. 
And yet it's so easy for us, so easy for me, and I, I would imagine it's so easy for you to try to hide that love. But what does Jesus say? By this they will know that you are my disciples, that he, you have love for one another. You should not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is there that love is demonstrated because Christ shows himself to be the savior of his church. Loving one another assures us of salvation, 1 John 4 tells us. Loving one another is the natural response to Christ's loving death. Loving one another leads to answered prayer, 1 John 4.20. Loving one another should be done in deed and in truth, 4.21. How much should we devote ourselves to that love for one another? to prioritizing worship with God's people, the company we keep, the language from our mouths, the way we do business, the way we speak to one another. The church should be defined by the love of Christ. It's as simple as that. Let your love shine before the world and especially before one another. Reject the primacy. Reject the, the world's the, the world's message of self-love, of self-worth, of self-value, of self-image, of self-first. What does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Pride, selfishness, these are the roots of all kinds of evil, of all kinds of wickedness. Therefore, therefore, pursue the love of your brothers and your sisters in your families, but especially of those in the church of God with discipline. Pursue that love with perseverance. Pursue it with humility as Christ did for you. Pursue it with honor as Christ did for you. Pursue that love with sincerity as Christ did for you. With gentleness as Christ did for you. For he was marred. He was bruised. He was crucified for your sakes. And that is love demonstrated. That is a love that will not ever fade away. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, we praise you that you have sent your son to this earth to live, to die, to rise, to be ascended into heaven for our sakes, to show your love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. May we love one another as the church is called to do. May we seek the love after Christ. May it push us, propel us, motivate us, drive us, pull us. And may we, may we be so characterized by love that the world looks and sees Christ in our love. We know that his love is perfect, even as ours can never be the side of heaven. But Father, we long to have a love that is perfected by the love of Christ from one degree of glory to another. We long to be more and more made into his image. Oh, Father, may his love compel us. May his love be the foundation, for we have been loved first. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.